My name is Neil Canavan. I'm the scientific advisor for the Trout Group. And this is a Trout Talk, and this is where we get scientists to talk about their science. And today I am with... Gary Anderson from the University of Melbourne in Australia. Gary, welcome. Can you tell me just a little bit about uh, how long have you been in your, your current position at the University of uh, Australia? So I've been at University of Melbourne, Melbourne. for oh, almost 15 years. I actually trained there. Completed my training in pharmacology. I'm a basic scientist and went for a one-year postdoc to Switzerland to work with a company called Sando. Mm -hmm. and then ended up spending 10 years in Basel uh, working with Sibagaygi and Sando and Sibagaygi merged to form what is now Novartis. And during that period spent a long time developing drugs that are now used in clinical medicine. So Thermoterol, involved in the theory of how to make indicaterol, long-acting beta agonist, worked on Zolaire, the anti-IgE molecule mm -hmm. that's now in clinical practice, and also worked for a period on Gleevec, which has some interesting properties outside of the cancer space because of its ability to target mast cells, and recently been demonstrated to be an effective anti-asthma medicine by Elliot Israel at Harvard Medical School. Also fascinating. So you have a quite a long history and development in this particular area. Uh, just briefly in your training, did, you must have touched on immunology. So I trained as a pharmacologist, but I've always had a very strong interest in immunology. And it was really when I did my postdoctoral studies that my interest uh, peaked because I had the chance working in Sibagaygi to interact with Manfred Kopf uh, from the Max Planck Institute in Germany, mm -hmm. Basel mm -hmm. Institute for Immunology, uh, Graham Legro, a famous New Zealand immunologist, and Tony Coyle, a colleague of mine. Uh, and Sibagaygi at that time had great depth understanding in, in new mechanisms. So it was wonderful to put drug discovery pharmacology together with new insights in pathways that were coming at the time. This was the period when the first knockout mice were being made and immune effector pathways were being selectively targeted. So really a very interesting period. So obviously, I mean, one thing I think a lot of us can identify with as far as immunology, if we don't know anything else, we know asthma and we know allergies. Uh, so you've entered this field and well, let's start with this. That asthma is, a, unfortunately, a growing field, is it not? So asthma prevalence globally has been rising for quite a long time. GINA, which is the summary of the key evidence on how to treat asthma and follows the epidemiology, the data now suggests that asthma is probably peaking, but the population prevalence is very high. So in a country like Australia, we have up to 14% of the population affected by asthma very, very prevalent condition. Now, in looking at that, all asthma patients are not the same. This is how I understand it from your talk this morning. Could you go into the concept of the endotype for me? Sure. When I started out, there were two theories of asthma. There was an allergic theory, IgE, granulating mast cells, promoting eosinophilic inflammation, which was thought to be most asthma. And then there was uh, non-atopic asthma. The theory of atopic asthma was really refined when we discovered that interleukin-4 drives the induction of T2 immunity, which is the underlying engine of atopic disease, also offering intervention points. But when the first fruits of that discovery were put to clinical tests, so the first generation IL-5 blockers and the first generation IL-4 blockers, and in fact many things that were trialed there's been very, very patchy clinical outcomes, and it's now apparent from more detailed analysis, particularly in the age of omics and gene profiling, that asthma is tremendously heterogeneous. So 
So introduced the concept now a decade ago of taking asthma and defining into what are now called endotypes. And these are molecularly defined subgroups of the disease where there's an identified driving path or pathways leading to the clinical expression of the disease. Now, uh, you referred to the, the, the T2 pathway. Is this uh, indicative of severity of, of asthma? So T2 signals are found in very mild asthma at the start of disease in children through to subsets of very, very severe disease. So it's a uh, immune pathway that doesn't necessarily track with severity, but is of great interest in severe asthma, which is very difficult to treat in steroid refractory because we now have evidence that blocking the T2 pathway in patients who have a high T2 signal is therapeutically beneficial. You referred to uh, your, your earlier work in drug development in this area, and we're talking about T2 blockers now. Uh, some of those targets have been uh, IgE and IL-5, you, you touched on those. We have Zolaire, obviously an extremely uh, successful drug. Within this milieu of the T2 blockers, why don't we have enough of them? Where's the unmet need? So what's really happened is, uh, as in many cases, even if we go back to the original development of inhaled steroids, early clinical trials have been very patchy. The reason this field has taken off is because, and we've known about the T2 signal for a long time, we now know how to match T2 signal with predictive biomarkers that allow patients to be stratified in early clinical development. So for example, the T2 pathway drives expression of exhaled nitric oxide, which is called pheno, and pheno can be used to identify patients who can be allocated to early clinical trials to get the dose right interventions that can then be extended into more ambitious phase three programs. And this has been a really important breakthrough, um, uh, as we've seen with the development of Gipilimab. Uh, just a, a bit more about the, the early work of the drugs themselves. Uh, we seem to have moved away from the small molecules altogether. Why? I think there's a lot of active research on small molecules. Uh, the biologicals give the advantage of a fairly stereotypical development pathway and a predictable technology and tremendous specificity. With small molecules, you run into a whole lot of problems on the drug development side. So uh, it's very common that you will develop a small molecule that'll hit target X, Mm. but is very difficult to formulate as a dry powder or has technical properties that make it hard to make into a wet solution or may not have advantageous lung kinetics or may be orally absorbed but not reach sufficient concentration in lung tissue to be beneficial. It's one of the reasons why we're very interested in marrying biologics with inhalation to bring specificity and lung deposition together. Before we get to that the formulation of, of the drug in question, the PRS OSSO, uh, I first want to uh, cover the, the more the mechanistic backgrounds. IL-4, talk to me about that. This is this is your baby? You, you yeah, so IL-4 was uh, discovered by Bill Paul and, and Finkelman and was identified as the factor that causes B cells to make IgE, so the B cell switch factor. Um, we did work in the early 1990s when the first knockout animals were made. And at that time, IL-4, what became IL-4 was called B-cell growth factor two. So we had animals from Georges Kohler, the famous immunologist who invented monoclonal technology with um, Milstein. He was very interested academically in everything to do with B-cells. So there was this B-cell growth factor. 
and we had access to the first knockout mice. And almost for curiosity, we looked at it and made this very unexpected discovery that when you lacked IL-5, or mice lacking IL-5, not turn on the T2 pathway. And because IL-4 is a product of the T2 pathway, this was completely counterintuitive. It's extremely unusual in biology that the product of the pathway is the inducer of the pathway because this is a feed forward and normally things feed backwards. So we were quite dazzled by this, but it really opened up the understanding that IL-4 turns on the T2 pathway. Then we did subsequent work, and many other scientists have probed into the pathway. It's the best known endotype and has uh, superb science. Uh, understanding that a gene duplicate, interleukin 13 from the IL-4 gene, very close cousin of IL-4, could produce IL-4-like properties. And so the theory early on was that interleukin 4 turned on the T2 pathway, and then interleukin 13 maintained the clinical phenotype. So that was the assumption from the mouse models. Turns out to be not entirely true. In humans. I'm, I'm going to guess that the people started chasing IL-13 because perhaps it's a more discrete target, um, but they haven't really played out. Yeah, so the biology taught us that interleukin-4 was tremendously important for the induction of T2 immunity, but when we compared knockout animals using with monoclonal antibodies where we could time the administration, we found that the antibodies were profoundly effective prior to induction of T2 immunity to prevent it but much less effective in knocking down established T2 immunity. But interleukin-13 seemed to be the maintainer of T2 biology, which was very persistent. So the idea was four kicks it off, perhaps in the pediatric early years of life, but 13 would maintain it. And for quite a long time, 13 was the hot ticket in the area. Everyone anticipated that IL-13 <laughs> blockers would be great. As it turns out, they're so-so, eh, and the winner in the race is Gipilomab which targets the common receptor for interleukin-4 and 13 to the IL-4 receptor alpha subunit. Now, obviously, the diplumumab is, is a monoclonal, uh, and this is an injected formulation, which is fine. We inject antibodies all the time, but why might it not be suited to this particular problem? So, uh, Gipilumab has shown great promise in phase three clinical trials. There have been two pivotal trials published, and it looks uh, both safe and effective. Uh, its properties are that it needs to be used every two weeks by injection, and that brings the problem of injection site reactions, which are fairly common. Uh, but the main issues with monoclonal antibodies targeting the 4-alpha pathway are not on the safety side. There are some theoretical concerns about interaction with glucose metabolism. There are some concerns about in, uh, interaction with tissue homeostasis and repair, but it does look very safe looking at its clinical profile. The main issue is that when you inject an IgG antibody, it is very poorly available, bioavailable to the epithelium. So from animal studies, we know- Due to its sheer size? Just due to the way uh, IgG framework antibodies are distributed through the body. So they do not reach high concentrations in the lining fluid of the lung. I see. So about 0.2% on mass balance of injected IgG fraction antibody in uh, higher primates reaches the lavage fluid, which is lying above the epithelium. So that's a lot of antibody you need to inject to get a small amount of antibody to the epithelium. And the really important thing here is that the 4-alpha receptor, which is the driver of the both of the and the maintenance of the IL-4 and the IL-13 biology mm -hmm. is very highly expressed in the epithelium. And we know from a lot of science that the epithelium is a key tissue driving uh, pathology and pathogenesis in asthma. So it's essential to reach the epithelium. And that's most easily done by simply inhaling drugs. 
the long experience in front development in prescription medicine. So now we're moving on, uh, all the listeners I would assume are familiar with uh, the structures of antibodies. Maybe not so many are familiar with the Kalin. Yeah, so the anti-Kalins are ingenious. So Greg Winter invented phage display technology to vary the CDR regions of antibodies to produce infinite number of near infinite number of variants. Uh, Arnie Skera, Technical University in Munich, took the same approach of phage display, but looked for other molecules where you could vary the structure, mm-hmm. and uh, looked at the uh, lipocalins. So lipocalins are a family of endogenous proteins. They're present in the human body. There are 12 of them. And at the moment, two of them are used to make potential drugs, potential medicines, uh, NGAL and lipocalin-1. But what's their purpose endogenously? So they have different biologies. Uh, Lipocalin-1 has two known functions. It's uh, present in, well, maybe three known functions. It's present in human tears, a very abundant protein, and it's probably involved for hydration properties of tear fluids. Uh, but also for host defense and moving lipophilic molecules between different anatomical compartments. So they look like little bird's nests to me. You can imagine a bird's nest with four loops around the rim of the nest. And physiologically, they bind lipophilic molecules and shuffle them between compartments. They also have cidrophore activities, which binds uh, iron, for example, to limit bacterial growth. They have a host defense property as well in mucosal surfaces. Do they communicate with the wider immune system? So, not thought to. They're not thought to be uh, core effector molecules in critical pathways. So, if you make a lipocalin-1 knockout animal, there's no phenotype. And this was actually Hmm. part of the logic of taking lipocalin-1 because it has no essential function. Uh, You can imagine if there were to be a drug, so an anti-lipocalin antibody reaction, which often occurs with inhaled proteins or other proteins. If you, on the safety side, you'd want to have a core platform that was non-essential because you wouldn't want in that scenario of the human immune system targeting the therapeutic modality and then producing an antibody that could neutralize a beneficial molecule. So they're important but not essential. Now to go to the drug itself, the PRS 060, this is an optimized Kalin-1? Yes. Yeah, so it's based on Lipocalin-1. The other aspect about Lipocalin-1 that's very important is that it's described in the literature as tear Lipocalin. It's very abundant in human tears, but it's also secreted physiologically in human lung lining fluid. And it seems to have a role to shuffle retinol, which is an important factor for epithelial growth and homeostasis through the epithelium. So it's secreted out into the fluid, disperses, and then shuffles back in through the epithelium and into the submucosal tissue we infer from studies looking at the histochemical distribution of lipocalin-1. So it has a really interesting property of being mucosally well-tolerated intrinsically because it's abundant normally in human lung and uh, having a very epithelial-friendly intrinsic protein property. So then you can use phage display technology to vary the loops of lipocalin-1. And that's how we optimize targets. Exactly, yeah. So the PIRIS technology is about 100 billion variants of lipocalin-1. And if you want to make a new drug, you immobilize your uh, compound of interest and then screen for affinity. And because it's a phage display technology, when you have your binding partners, you can then sequence and expand the, uh, the binding partner. And that was how 60 was developed. Well, the lead for 60 was developed. 
And then of course you go through and optimize infinity through selective mutation and also check the T-cell, B-cell epitopes to avoid potential immunogenicity mm -hmm. and then formally check the human tissues for or human PBMCs, uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells for propensity to reactivate immune process to really try and minimize the chance for an adverse immune reaction. And that work has already been done. That's all been done. Mm -hmm. So the toxicology and all the safety screening and T-cell, B-cell uh, epitope stripping has was completed long ago. So the compound is now advanced to human clinical trials. Was there ever a consideration of injection over a nebulized formulation? Not for lipocalin-1. So one of the really important things with lipocalin-1 is that it has <coughs> quick renal clearance. It has a very okay. rapid kidney elimination but when you inhale it, it's retained in the lung. So this actually has been leveraged in the development of 60. When you inhale the molecule, it's retained in lung tissue. Some of it will transit from lung to blood, and then that's secreted quickly. So it has very, very low propensity for systemic exposure. As what's, the, what's the half-life? Oh, about three hours okay. in the blood. So quick elimination unless you do half-life extension technology. So it was never considered for parental administration. Now, uh, the IL-4 pathway, I've not looked at it extensively, obviously, there's a redundancy throughout the body. Uh, in terms of adverse events, if, what would you, is there anything off target or off disease setting that you would be concerned about in using IL-4 blockers? So, um, at the moment, not. Uh, Jupilumab has a pediatric indication, so it's clearly considered safe and used now clinically for treating atopic dermatitis, has licensed down to H2 in the United States. In the published data on Jupilumab, the things that have come out have been fairly high frequency of injection site reactions uh, compared to placebo, which are not limiting but uh, unpleasant, and uh, ocular inflammation has come up. There's also a theoretical risk for increasing propensity for viral infections, and there have been a few reports of uh, viruses, so herpes viruses, but uh, really... Like a reactivation? No, really around uh, limitations to host defense against uh, herp ah. herpes viruses because of the uh, role of 4-alpha and immune balance in, in antiviral immunity. But uh, these are not major problems. And so at the moment, the clinical experience with Jupilumab and the safety data that I've seen is, is very impressive. Um, now, as I understand, asthma, these, uh, it's rarely treated as a monotherapy. There's always something you have on board and there are rescue medications. Yeah. Where's, the, where's the fit here? So standard of care for asthma these days, for more severe asthma, is to use a combination uh, product, which is a long-acting beta agonist plus an inhaled glucocorticosteroid. And the art of making these is very sophisticated to keep them in the lung and really re massively reduce systemic exposure. That's absolute standard of care. Where 60 fits in future paradigms is that we know as asthma gets more severe, steroids do not do the job of controlling the disease well. So you see a Gaussian distribution with a decreasing steroid response as disease severity worsens. And actually the SARP colleagues, so the US Severe Asthma Research Program colleagues have recently published a very compelling evidence that in human severe asthma, steroids do not affect T2 program at all, and they've proved that by using depot high dose inhaled, uh, a high dose injected steroid, trinsimolone, and showed that that, although it reduced eosinophils, uh, did not affect the T2 signature in the human lung. So we can imagine 60 being very complementary to standard of care 
beta agonist steroid combinations, including oral steroids, but producing benefits that can't be achieved with steroids, which at the moment are the cornerstone controller medication for the disease. So very, very adjunctive, uh, complementary to, to current treatment paradigms. Is obviously asthma can be lifelong. Uh, is there any considerations for long-term exposure to this agent? Any concerns? Yeah, so we know IL-4 knockout animals, four-stepped alpha knockout, uh, there's no known phenotype. Uh, the safety looks very good for targeting this pathway. Do we know whole of life yeah, from yeah. pediatric consequences of blocking the four alpha pathway? We don't know. Um, I would imagine personally, from what we understand about the evolution of human asthma, that in the future it may be possible to aggressively target the T2 window in early life, because this is the signal that causes intermittent wheeze to become consolidated wheeze, which is then, as a paediatricians won't call asthma before age six, they talk about intermittent wheeze and oh. persistent wheeze, and then after about age six they'll talk about persistent asthma. It really seems the T2 signal is essential for that intermittent wheeze to consolidate into persistent wheeze uh, and then into persistent asthma. Once you have asthma, very, very few people undergo spontaneous remission. So it's almost a lifelong problem. And it would be wonderful if we could, in the future, leverage intervention in the T2 space to try and uh, prevent people getting asthma or to induce lasting remissions. But this really belongs to whole set of that future would be a hard trial to run. Uh, typical trials, but there are now yeah. protocols underway trying to do primary prevention of asthma. So, anti-immune manipulators have been trialed to reset T1 T2 balance. There's a very large trial using uh, an agent called Bronchobaxom, which is a, a, a immune modulator that's been very, very good safety record. It's using heat-killed bacteria and it's used orally, and uh, it's a very large protocol running in the United States over the next uh, three to five years, I believe which will see whether you can get primary prophylaxis of asthma. So the pediatrician's already thinking about this. And uh, to wrap up, there, this is now in a, in, under phase one study, is it not? So it is, yeah. So 60 entered human phase one studies in healthy volunteers in December okay. 2017. So we're looking for MTD uh, safety? Yeah, so okay. safety phase at the moment. And then finally, uh, Crystal Ball, uh, you are a scientist, you like to pose questions. Um, after we've established the safety, and let's assume for the moment that it's efficacious, uh, what was the trial that you would like to see that would really nail down the, the use of this drug? So what, what I anticipate we'll see is that inhaling PRS060 will in the first instance replicate the clinical benefits of jupilumab. But what's really important is that by having an inhaled modality, you can use it in a much more flexible way than a monoclonal antibody. So asthma therapy is evolving into regular maintenance therapy, uh, intermittent therapy, and symptom-driven dose escalation protocols called maintenance and reliever therapy protocols. What's very exciting is that an inhaled for alpha blocker is completely compatible with maintenance or intermittent or dose escalation protocols. So I would like it to see it move first from very severe asthma jupilumab-like trials to let's have a look in moderately severe asthma, because I think there'd be a benefit in moderately severe asthma, and then to look at its clinical utility in more flexible dosing regimes, which more closely uh, look mirror current treatment paradigms for the disease. 
And then in the very adventurous phase in the future, we might imagine off the background of what will hopefully be a very good safety and tolerability profile, pediatric interventions around primary prophylaxis in T2 high infants. The final question, let's assume we're gonna get an approval. Uh, am I, can I load this on my inhaler or do I need a special one? No, so one of the great things about these lipocalins are that they are completely compatible with formulation into aqueous or wet net, uh, PMDI, so pressurized metadose inhalers, and completely compatible technically with making inhalable dry powders. They formulate easily you know, to produce an aerosol that's wet or a dry powder that's dry, and to get exactly the right particle size, you need to optimize deposition into different regions of the lung. So they have very, very excellent galenical properties and also extremely high stability compared to other biological agents, which are usually very difficult to formulate. It's the opposite with these. So they're actually blessed by very good galenical properties. Excellent. Well, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today. Real pleasure, Neil.